The recently released executive order on artificial intelligence from the Biden administration drew a lot of interest from the technology professionals and the interest groups. Everyone is glad the White House is focused on this issue. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with one expert observer. He's the executive director of the University of Arizona's Institute for Computation and Data-Enabled Insight, Barney McCabe. I was pleased to see uh, NIST's involvement. I think that I would like to see a clearer call for participation from universities and national laboratories. There's some part for the national laboratories in there. I think they can provide more input on a lot of the programs and areas. I think academia can put some more into it. I think that my biggest concern going into all of this is that the rate of change in these technologies, the rate of introduction of new technologies, and it's hard to imagine that any process can keep up with them effectively without having a lot more involvement. I, and I guess I would say, you know, one of the things I've pushed on is in, engaging sort of the professional societies that are relevant here. And there's a number of them. And so you got the Association for Computing Machinery and the IEEE and a number of those. And I think that, that I'd like to see some more explicit sort of how do you work with them? How do you work with the science board? Uh, and some of that. But in general, I think that they're trying to address the challenges coming up. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of on that fine tuning aspect of, of what what's there. Would you consider it a good start, though? Or Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I think it, it, it's they're, they're trying to fill a void that needs to be filled. And so they're, they're starting on a process. I think going back to their the AI Bill of Rights, the blueprint for that. Going back to that, I think they're starting off with the right sort of process on that. Again, I, I could fine-tune that and say I'd like to see some some tweaks added to that. But in general, this notion of what are our rights as citizens and communities and start from that and then go through how do we then build a process that's as apolitical as possible, right, that, that will focus on the technology and the challenges that are real in this process. Well, I want to go back to what you said about the rate of change. What what does that mean when it comes to artificial intelligence? Obviously, you know, an upgrade, but what does a rate of change look like? Uh, you know, is it just going to be moving in exponential pace, or is it going to be small and incremental? What what do you uh, what do you foresee? Exponential. That's 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 the real challenge. I think because and computing's been on this exponential, right? That that we've been with Moore's law, we've seen. So this continual increase in our ability to compute and bring the technology in. And what's happened with AI in particular, these sort of advanced information technologies, we started from having to have a lot of theory behind the tools that we would build to do, say, natural language processing or understanding of human communication. And with the new tools we have, it's just massive amounts of data that you can throw at it and the computing can come at it. And the real innovation here comes out of what body of work are you using? What what data do you have available to you? And how do you start to think about using that differently? And so these new generative techniques, right? The the diffusion methods or the the other approaches that people are using, those are evolving very, very quickly. Right? And new approaches come in. So I'd hate to predict what, what, what's going to be the big thing after chat GPT within a year. But there will be something, right? And there will be something new that sort of shakes us in what the, what the capabilities are. 
And so that kind of rate of change coming at us means it's very hard. I mean, traditionally, when information technologies came in, they came in rather slowly, right? And, and the next one, we had time to react to the change to our societies and our communities. We're not getting that time to, to wait and, and reflect and think back on it. We're speaking with Barney McCabe, who is a professor at the University of Arizona. And is the rate of change, is that the only challenge? I imagine it's not, but uh, that's obviously the biggest challenge. What are the other issues that regulators are going to have if they are going to try and implement some sort of standards when it comes to creating and utilizing artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, so the trade-off here seems to be the rate of change, new things coming in, how do you control them enough that they do minimal harm and yet allow innovation, right? Because the innovation coming out of these technologies is phenomenal, right? What, what we're able to do, what we're able to create and how we, how we're going to advance that process. It's pretty amazing. And so you get this new thing coming in, try it out, see how you can do with it, but try to minimize or at least regulate the harm that gets done, right? We've seen this happen before, right? Where the, the technologies come in to either automate a, a process on housing or, or applications for loans, right? And then we go back and look and, and find out there was bias in the data that was used to generate that. But the process of automating loans made it much easier, much faster to get a loan and, and to go on and do business, right? And so that kind of challenge is, is the thing you face and, and we'll face that going forward as we as we see and partly the process that we use and the, and the approaches we come at for for reviewing these technologies that's going to need to change as well to keep up with the technological changes so it almost sounds as if as a technology professional like yourself you're welcoming the ethicists to start <laughs> voicing their opinions when it comes to artificial intelligence no I think that would be an understatement. Yes, it, it is. Embrace them, bring them in, bring the sociologists into this conversation, right? And I think this is really the opportunity we have as a society is to say, let's bring in the artists as well, right? And, and understand how this technology can be transformed to do good for societies and be aware and be watching and be ever present for the, the challenges that it brings in terms of the potential harms. That come in and, and, and yeah, absolutely bring the SSS and bring the humanists and bring in all of the disciplines that have been sort of, I mean, at least financially, I would say marginalized, but I think uh, bring them into the table in the conversation. We all need to sort of participate in that. Going to ask you to get a little meta here. Uh, is the answer to regulating AI more AI itself, <laughs> having uh, software watch software? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's that. Yes, in, in fact, there there will be a process by yes that that there will be some parts of that that involve an AI actually looking over the profit. I mean, yeah, it's something you can automate. We will automate it. So, what do you foresee as the next steps that need to happen here? Obviously, you know, some more voices that you talked about getting in on the process, but as you mentioned, a good start. But what would you like to see um, happen? You know, next. Yeah, so I guess from the executive order, it's going to be how does it roll out, right? And, and what is specifically is the role of NIST in this? I think that, and I'll go back to the, what's the role of Department of Homeland Security? What's the role of the National Laboratories? What's the role of academia? 
What are the role of the professional societies? And as you bring out momentarily, is, is what are the role of the ethicists? How do we get them involved? And how do we get the conversation to where people sort of in the social human sciences understand the technology well enough to understand and, and project where the challenges are going to be before they come up? So I think it, it's mostly in how do we roll out this executive order? I think there's a, it's a great start. So the, the challenge is going to come in to, in, you know, having worked at a national lab for a number of years, I can assure you that the agencies are going to be sort of pushing around to try and figure out where their place is in this. And I think that's, that's possibly a good, there should be a good outcome from that. That will be a conversation that's had in Washington as to who's responsible for what. Again, my, my biggest concern there is that the academic institutions, the professional societies that may not have as strong a representation in that process could easily get moved to the side. And I think that would be a bad thing. I think that, that this is where I go the social scientists, right? The historians come in and look back in the history of these technological challenges and changes, right? So we've been through these before. This is, I mean, we've been through these sort of industrial revolutions. And I would say we're really on an industrial revolution at this point. How do we manage that to make sure we, you're not going to eliminate harm. People are going to get displaced from the jobs they're doing today. Things are going to happen in that. But we've got to be observant of that. And we probably be looking back at the previous industrial revolutions and seeing what happened there. So there's a book I'm currently reading is Blood in the, Blood in the Machine. Uh, and it's a history of the uh, industrial revolution with automated weaving. Right. And what happened there and sort of the processes and the political aspects. And that's going at the Luddites and pointing out that the Luddites weren't actually anti-technology. They were anti the way technology was being used to displace them from the jobs they had and the recognition that the, the technology would be part of that. And I think that's a conversation we need to be having is more broadly is it's not necessarily about the technology. The technology will come in and it will get advanced. How is it going to be used in our society? And I think, again, this is the executive order starts to address, I think, what are the critical issues? And we need to participate in how that's actually, how it's executed, how it comes to about. Professor Barney McCabe is executive director of the University of Arizona's Institute for Computation and Data-Enabled Insight, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Get your intelligence daily. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? 
and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.